Welcome back to Weekly Specials. I'm your host, Will Gadara, and I'm thankful that you are here listening. Okay, it's no surprise. We've been talking about it since the birth of this show slash podcast, the, the dire situation that the restaurant business is in right now. And we're in a really weird time right now because on one hand, it's pretty encouraging to see how some restaurants are reacting or reemerging, whether through takeout and delivery or through opening outdoor dining rooms or launching creative pivots. There's people that are doing really inspiring things that are giving me and so many other people hope that there is a beautiful industry that is going to exist on the other side of this. But on the other hand, there's a harsh reality in that there's a lot of restaurants that are closing, but permanently. Depending on where you get your data, you may have seen that Yelp is saying 60% of restaurants marked as closed on their website are not going to reopen. Or that four out of five independent restaurants may not survive the pandemic. Some of these closures are some of the most beloved restaurants out there. Places like Blackbird, Lucky Strike, Odessa, Bon Tomp, Twamec, Pock Pock, Here's Looking at You, K. Paul's Louisiana Kitchen, High Street on Market, and so many others. Some of the places that I've dined at over the course of years where I've developed like some of my greatest memories, it's heartbreaking that I'll never be able to go back to them again. And so much more heartbreaking than that, the idea that there are people that invested all of their money and their lives in creating these places and have had to go through the process of figuring out how to say goodbye to them, to let their dreams die. So, I mean, these are really, really challenging times where we have to process through a lot of really, really difficult emotions. But one of the things we've always found is that in the darkest of times, conversation, vulnerable dialogue about those times is more important than ever. And so today's episode is a really great conversation between me and Gavin Kaysen. I mean, he's just one of the most extraordinary people and beautifully articulate. I mean, listen, we are very good at finding silver linings in our industry, we're optimists. We always find the high points and all of this stuff. The reality is he had to close one of his restaurants and it sucks. But talking to him, he somehow makes you feel hopeful in processing through his pain. And it's a really beautiful thing. It's a great conversation. So let's jump right into it. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. Weekly Specials. Good news coming at you. The Weekly Specials. Weekly Specials. Good news coming at you. I have the honor of having Chef Gavin Kaysen join us for the show. Uh, Gavin and I have known each other <laughs> for a long time now. I don't even know how long. 
And we saw each other a ton back in the city. Back in the day, his involvement with Boku's Door was probably where we really started to connect when James Kent, who worked with me at Love Medicine Park, was competing. He was also the right-hand man of one of my favorite people, Daniel Belude. And then he left town. He went to his hometown in Minneapolis and just started opening award-winning restaurants. He won a ton of awards, became the wonder kid of the, of the Midwest. And even we talk about adversity being a terrible thing to waste, even since March with working on the Independent Restaurant Coalition, I feel like he and I have grown even closer. All that aside, he's also one of the most humble, hardworking, thoughtful people I've ever met. So Gavin, I'm really excited to have you here. Welcome to Weekly Specials. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So this is checking in. This is where I just kind of want to get a sense of what's going on in your world and, and how you're processing through all of this. And so first off, what just, I mean, obviously we're going to get into Belcourt in a minute, but just give me a, like a, a reasonable update on what you've been up to and the properties you have that have been open, what you're doing there and, and all of it. Yeah. So, I mean, we have two restaurants now. We had three and we'll, we'll talk about what happened to one of them. Spoon and Stable is still up and operating. We do 50% occupancy inside. You know, we're putting tables outside on our sidewalk to try to fill that as much as we can. And then we also do takeout food. And then Demi is a 20 seat restaurant. So we can fit all of 12 people in that mm. restaurant now. But we've added some outdoor tables and we've gotten creative. I feel like my inner Danielle Balud has come out and just started to put tables where everybody shouldn't put them. <laughs> you know, people are like, what about a permit, chef? I'm like, I don't care about a permit. Just put a table out there. Put it in my office. <laughs> I don't care. We're doing what we can with that. You know, we also have a sports catering company that I'm in partnership with Andrew Zimmerman on called KZ Provisioning. And that, you know, we, we cooked for the hockey team up until a couple of days ago when they just went to Edmonton to play. We're still cooking for the Timberwolves, which is our pro basketball team. We were cooking for the Lynx, which is our other pro basketball team, the female pro basketball team, but now they're on in their bubble. So we're starting to pick up new contracts of, you know, private chefing for some of the football players coming into town and things like that. So it's a bit of the game of the side hustle right now. Yeah. You know? Hey, you know, there's some people that listen to this that are not in the restaurant business. And I feel like people, and you and I have seen this both when we're talking about relief for restaurants where they're like, well, you guys have takeout, you have delivery, you have outdoor seating, you're doing fine. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, so basically the way that we ran a restaurant group of three restaurants and a catering company before allowed us an opportunity to receive a very small amount of profit margin. 10% would be considered a wild success. And in some cases we were hitting that a little bit above it and in some cases below it. We've now reduced our revenue by what I would say 65, if not more percent, while trying to also keep the same or similar amount of staff. The one thing that I think is really hard for people to understand, which I genuinely appreciate is that they can't understand the expenses that go into what it is that makes your experience exceptional. And that includes everything from how the HVAC works and where yeah. does that airflow come out of? What does the sound of the music come through in that restaurant? How is the waiter or the waitress dressed and what is that apron provided to them? And what does that feel like? All of these things that we're willing to pull expenses out of and say, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. We're doing it because we know it makes us feel better as hospitalitarians and if we feel good about who we are we are going to inevitably make the guest feel even better about their experience within our establishment that has all been stripped away from us 
I said to my team when we all came back to work, I said, you left on March 15th, managing joy and appreciating laughter. You've come back to managing fear and survival. Yeah. And it's just a completely different world that we're trying to live in and we're trying to shape ourselves. I mean, we are a business that is focused on making people happy by being in front of people. <laughs> and so when you take that away and you take away the economics of it, it just doesn't work unless we get help, unless we get some sort of relief and all these little things like PPP and this and that. Yes, they're all helpful. They're all helpful. But that doesn't, help doesn't save people. Help doesn't save an industry. Solutions save an industry. And that's, you know, what Independent Restaurant Coalition has been, what we've all been fighting for, for this whole time. And that is so important. And I feel like it's gaining momentum. And I think it's, I think we're past the point of people feeling sorry for our business. And we're at the point now where people are listening to what we need for our business. Yeah, I sure hope so, huh? You talked about the staff and I love how you articulated that, like what they left doing and what they're coming back doing. We've been talking just a ton about just how right now restaurateurs, we've always needed to be coaches, right? Like Danny Meyer would always say, hospitality is a team sport. What we do is, okay, maybe, you know, you're creating food and we're designing rooms and all this, but really we're coaching a team. And it's so much easier to coach a winning team than it is to coach a team when things are tough. How is morale? How are you, how are you handling that? What yeah, advice do you have to give to people out there who are going through the same thing? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the hardest things because you're, you're, you know, you're trying to get people to come back and they left the winning team. And so they want to come back to what that feels like, but it's not going to get back to how it felt. I mean, I gave a, a, an opening speech to my team at Spoon when we did orientation. And by the way, that day was like super emotional for me. And I, I sort of reflected the day after why it was so emotional and what I realized is it was the human contact with all these people that I missed seeing on a day-to-day basis and how much I took for granted walking yeah. and run, you know, go past me so quickly or whatever. But I said to them in that speech, as I said, if you walk into this building today and you're immediately coming in guarded and you're immediately coming in with what everything is wrong and what everything is negative, we're never going to get to where we need to go. If you walk out of this room and you think to yourself, here are the 10 things that Gavin and his restaurant team are doing incorrectly, but you don't vocalize and tell us that, we're never going to get anywhere together. We have to understand that we need to be together on this. We're going to succeed together. We're going to fail. And I said to them, I said, I am going to make mistakes. I'm going to screw things up. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to do the wrong thing. It's going to happen. But we need to come together and figure out how we mold together as a group and sort of get through this like really, really dark time and this really volatile time that's in our profession. And so managing the morale has been a lot of one-on-one conversations and less about before you could do it in a pre-shift. And now I think it's more about sitting down with somebody for 10 minutes and just being like, how are you? And what's going on? Yeah, because you need those lines of communication open. It needs to be, you need an environment where people are encouraging one another. They're lifting one another up and they're also holding one another accountable. And that's a hard thing to do when you're in front of 30 other people in a pre-shift or I guess less these days. Yeah. One other question. I know you well enough to know that you're a perfectionist and we're all, everyone's going back to work and they're trying to set up patios and we don't have big budgets to like set up a patio the way that we ordinarily would. How have you managed like even the design and setup of outdoor seating? 
Well, thankfully, I closed one restaurant that had a robust patio. <laughs> I, took, <laughs> I took all the furniture out of there and I brought it downtown. <laughs> all right, so you're one of the lucky ones there. So I, I won a little bit in that regard, but it's still been hard. I mean, you know, you're sitting on a sidewalk. Demi's kind of a funny one because we have this little, like, nook. Do you remember, was it at Nomad when you guys built, like, that little, like, Swiss chalet in between a building and New York, yeah. right? Okay. Yes, yeah. So... At Demi, when you walk in, there's this like right to the left is, it's not a patio. It's just like, I don't know what it is. It's a sidewalk and it's yes. got a railing. And then my, my walk-in cooler is there. And so in the wintertime, we cover that with a heated awning so people can sit out there and have a cocktail. And when it's not minus 65 degrees in Minnesota, it feels really good. So the summer came and we needed two patio tables out there. And so I was like, just go, go buy as many plants as you can and cover up all the cars <laughs> right in front of this. And let's make this thing look soigné. <laughs> so it looks great now, but yeah, I mean, it's, everyone's had to get creative. That's for sure. I do think that there is, we are being given grace by the world as restaurant people to not have to be as perfect as whether they expected us to be in the past or we expected ourselves to be. And I think it's resulting in more hilarious and inspiring innovation as a result of it. If you lean into it and embrace it. I think there's a sense of freedom to it, to yeah. be honest. I mean, I think that it gives us an opportunity to take a step back and say, okay, that one thing that we were so worried about, like, was that really, was that necessary? I mean, Demi is working on its next menu and the Minnesota State Fair just got canceled, which is like a huge deal here, right? You have 150 to 200,000 people that show up to that thing every single day. In terms of creative freedom, our chef was like, why don't we do all three canapes as State Fair themed canapes? It's yes. like, great, you know, let's do stuff like that. Let's, you know, what does that look like? Let's do dip and dots with oysters and let's do, I mean, whatever we want to do, but like, let's have fun with it and make people smile because, it, you know, really like ultimately, and you know, Will, you're, you're the master at this, but when people come into your space and sit down, there's nothing more gratifying than walking up to them and seeing them smile with pure joy and saying like, this is just unbelievable. Like this yeah. is an exceptional experience. Um, and God, I, you know, I, I just, I miss that so much. Thank you for saying that. But like now we also need to have fun too, because if there's been any perspective here, it's like, yeah. okay, this is all, it's all too short. Like if we're not having a blast every day, yeah. then what's the point of it? I agree. Okay. I want to talk and I'm sure this is like a little painful for you to talk about, but you're also one of the more emotionally aware and in touch um, and vulnerable people I know. And so that's why we wanted to have this conversation with you because listen, there's a lot of people in America that are going through what you're going through right now. And I think there's catharsis and having dialogue around it. And so Belcor closed. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to talk about how you came to that decision, how you've been feeling since then, what the response has been like to the news from the team, from the community, all of that. So to go into it, I'll, I'll give you a story of why Belcor was born and the purpose behind it. So the first time I went to restaurant Paul Bocuse was in 2006 and that was for the Bocuse door. And so I went to Lyon to find these chickens that I needed to cook that I could not export into America. I went to the restaurant. I had dinner in his kitchen with him and it was the chef's office. And as I walked out of the restaurant with Mr. Bocuse, I noticed that he was flying the American flag in front of the restaurant. And after enough courage of drinking the wine, thinking to myself, now I can ask the question. 
I said, Jeff, why do you fly the American flag? And he says, ah, he says, I'm glad you asked. He says, so in World War II, I was shot. And I was left to be dead in the field. And an American soldier found me and picked me up and brought me to a hospital and gave me a blood transfusion and saved my life. And so I fly the American flag for two reasons. One, to remind people that American blood runs through my veins. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he says, and two, I never want us to forget why we're here today. The center of Lyon, France is a square called Place Belcourt, which is navigation point zero of Europe. And there's a statue that commemorates the French taking back that region after World War II. If you look at it at the right time in the morning of the sunrise, you have the statue and the sun behind it and the Ferris wheel that sits in that square. And I, I went for a run one morning and I saw that and I said, I have to name the next restaurant Belcourt in honor of Mr. Bocuse and Mr. Boulud, the two people I know that were born and raised in that city because the French, especially those two gentlemen, taught me so much about food, cooking, and hospitality that I wanted to be able to give back to them in a way that honored their legacy as much as they've honored ours. Yes. So when I opened Belcourt, I called Mr. Bocuse, asked him if I could both open the restaurant in that vein and then tell that story. And he agreed to it. And then he passed away six months later. Oh. So for me, Belcourt has always been a very, very personal story because it's not a restaurant. It's the stories of me going to France every year and spending the time that I've spent over there. And that part of me has not totally absorbed what the loss of that restaurant has meant. But I also know that when I took a step back and I thought to myself, okay, we've been on this like climb the last five years. We opened Spoon and Stable, amazing success. We opened Belcour, amazing success. We opened Demi, amazing success. We've hit these three home runs. You can relate to this because I watched you do this in New York. After a while, you think to yourself like, this is great. We're on you know, the climb up. And then COVID hit <clears throat> and everything sort of stopped. And where that space is, it's a seasonal market. I make all my money in the summer. I mean, the business behind it is I lose money in January, February, March, and April. I make money in May, June, July, and August. Yes. That's it. So I've lost, I mean, I you look at lost the, your year. I lost my whole year. And if I lose my whole year in one restaurant in a normal year, it's okay. I've got two other successful restaurants that can hold that up. But when those two restaurants are also trying to hold on, I had to figure out a way to trim the tree, but save the trunk. Yes. And so Belcour became that sacrificial lamb in a way to the company to help me save the other two restaurants. I'm never going to look back and say to myself, that was an easy decision. And I've thought in the last two weeks, is it the right decision? Is it not? Of course, I've always wrestled with that because I don't think you can never not, but I also have to take a step back from it and think to myself, like, remove the emotional side of it. What you said earlier about like having fun and being short lived and all of these things, that's also an important part of it. And so if I take my step back and I say, okay, out of everything that, that we put into that restaurant, if we take it away from us and we gain the spoon and stable and Demi and we can restructure our organization and we, we can restructure what that looks like, we have to make sure that we put ourselves in a better spot to, be, to just be less vulnerable in these situations. The hardest part was telling the team, but I will tell you the hardest part was when my 10-year-old Emil found out and he cried himself to sleep. Uh -huh. Because to him, he, like, he understands restaurants and he understands what we're doing. You know, Julius, my eight-year-old's like, Daddy, let's just build a second one. I'm like, yeah, it's like Legos. <laughs> <laughs> just put one up. 
you know, but, but Emil is very sensitive and he's very thoughtful that way. And so for him, it was really, really tough to absorb that loss. And I think that that, that part, that part has continued to be really hard for me. And I think from an emotional perspective, I don't think I've worked through all of the emotions yet, but I have to trust that the decision that we made was the right decision. And I have to trust that humanizing ourselves to what that decision holds in terms of consequences thereafter is only going to inevitably make us stronger as a team and as a company and as human beings. Yes. And I believe that. I, I just believe that. And so I sort of go through my day and I begin my day thinking and, and talking myself through that because you lose the team. And as you know, Will, like, Yes, I'm, I'm sad to lose the space. I'm sad to lose the guests that came into the space, but I'm sad to have lost the team that we worked so hard to build to run yeah. that space. But and then you want to scramble to put them all in different restaurants, but it's not yeah. as if you even have enough space at the other two restaurants to bring them. Right. You know, what, one thing we did is we took a space across the street from Spoon and Stable, which is a cooking store called Cooks of Crocus Hill. It's a pretty powerful local brand. They have three shops here. And we put a Belcour Bakery pop-up in there. And awesome. so I think we're going to try to make that a permanent because now a lot of our bakery staff is, you know, they're working there in the, in the front and selling the food. And we're going to try to figure out how to get the kitchen down there. And it's not that we're going to make it work. We're going to make it work with the lessons learned to make us better for it. Yeah. You know? And I love that, man, because listen, I think that a lot of people going through the permanent closing of a restaurant and there's a lot, there's a lot that have already gone through it. And there's honestly, yeah like depressingly a lot more that will mm -hmm. there's people who that's the kill shot. And they're like, you know what? I'm over it. I put so much into it. That was everything I had. I'm going to go do something else. And then there are the people that say, no, you know what? I'm not giving up. And maybe this was actually meant to be. And this was something that was supposed to happen to point me in a different direction or, and maybe this new iteration of it will be something that you look back on and are even more proud of somehow some way yeah i mean it, i agree if anything it's taught me a lot of the fact that there's no straight arrow when it comes to success and there's no straight arrow when it comes to growth or brand building or any of those things and we're all human and so we're all going to screw things up we're all going to learn from those mistakes we're all going to do things that we think is right and might be wrong or is right and so we go through it but it's like I still get to go home every night and see my wife and my two children. I get to yeah. wake up and see their smiling faces every day. Like that's still there for me. And when I take a step back and look to look at my world and I say, well, what is value, right? What is of importance? Yes. I need the business for that to be, or I need this for that business to be successful, but I don't need all of that, you yeah. know? And, and so I just think that Belcor is, if the bakery is what lives on for Belcour for the rest of its iteration, then I find that to be a tremendous success. I, I sent a text to Thomas Keller when, I, when this was all happening and just to get some advice from him. And he just said, make sure you close that door tightly, you know, when you close it and, and yeah. make sure you're ready for what's going to be open next. And so I think it's often like, I equate this back to my time in New York City. Like I was so afraid to leave New York. I remember talking to Danielle a million times about this and just being terrified about chef. What do I do? Like if I leave cafe Belude, if I leave New York city, I'm leaving the center of the universe. I'm leaving the media bubble. I am leaving all of these, these people behind me who can help lift me. 
And so I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I get more profiles in the New York Times in Minneapolis than I ever got in New York. <laughs> you know? And so it's like, just do what you think is right for you. You know, like, don't guess what everybody else thinks you're supposed to do. And speaking of him, did you talk to Danielle after the closure? Did you guys? Yeah, that? that was, man, I'll tell you, that was the hardest conversation I had. I cried pretty hard. He didn't, I don't think he knew that, but because I just felt like I let him down. You know, I worked nine, nine, almost nine years for that guy and, and I loved every second of it. And it really, you know, what, the reason I loved working there and the reason that I loved working for him is because he allowed me the opportunity to run that restaurant as if it was my own. He allowed me to make the mistakes. He would always tell me, I have the safety net below you. So if you really fall too hard, don't worry, I'll catch you. It was just an, an enormous amount of trust that I felt that he gave me and continues to give me to this day. I mean, he's one of my business partners. It's pretty crazy to think that in this day and age, like you go and work for somebody for eight or nine years, then he turns around and he invests in your own company. Yeah. You know, that's sort of a remarkable thing. So yeah, I, I, I told him about it and he was really sad and, but he understands, like he totally gets it. You know, that's the one thing about, I love about talking to Danielle. Sometimes you just talk to him and he's like, yeah, 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 I get it. And it's like, you, move on. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's so cool. I mean, he's, he's one of the best people in the entire industry. A lot of people I feel like don't know that side of him well enough to fully appreciate his generosity of spirit. The first time I, I, you might know this story, but in 2005, I wrote him a letter and the letter requested that I do a one week stage for him at restaurant Danielle to, to perhaps just understand and learn about his business. And so I worked there for seven days, Will, and on the third day, Danielle finally showed up to the, to, he was traveling. So on my third day, he was there because the King of Spain was in the dining room having dinner. Of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. And what was crazy about that experience is that on my last day, Danielle asked me to come up to the skybox and have a dish with him. And so I ate dinner with him and then we had a glass of champagne and we talked for hours, hours so many hours to the point where it was early enough in the morning that his baker had already arrived. So I went downstairs and grabbed a warm muffin to grab, to get a taxi, to go to the airport. I mean, no we were like, way. Yeah. so that letter that I had written to him, he wrote in the top right-hand corner to Cynthia, his HR director, dear Cynthia, please hold on to this. Could be good future chef for the company. No. And when I left Cafe Baloo, he gave me that letter. Oh, you know, that's the thing that, that's priceless. That is what makes a restaurant a restaurant. Yeah. Because the way that he was on that day to me, who was nobody in 2005, is the way that he is with every guest and employee that walks into that door. And you feel it. And I think like, if people ask me all the time, what's the one thing you learned? It's like, I don't know how to put that into a sentence, but that's what I learned. I learned that hospitality is not an act. Hospitality is a gift and it is something that you are able to give to others by the way that you live and present yourself on a daily basis in front of them. Are you a dining room guy that got confused at some point over the years? <laughs> I, I just, I'm just listening to you talk right now. Um, I got fired in the dining room, Will, so no. <laughs> I, I tried to be a busboy and I got fired. <laughs> Well, my first experience with him was at a keg party at my house on College Ave. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then my mom passed away like five months later. And I was no, but I was just a student he met right. at Cornell. And he cooked for my dad until two in the morning in the skybox. And yeah. similarly, 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, the way he is. I had all of my Boku store equipment in Lyon and I went to move it from my storage unit into his parents' barn. Okay. His mom and dad's like to have this barn next to their house. And so Danielle was like, stop paying all this money for the storage unit. Just move it. And I said, okay, chef. So I rented a U-Haul and I moved it all. And Danielle's father, Julian came out, who's like the most amazing man. I mean, if you think Danielle's amazing, meet his father. Okay. <laughs> and Julian comes out and says, would you like to have a coffee? And I said, sure. So I sit down, I have a cup of coffee. Then it turns into a four hour lunch. Okay. The lunch was remarkable. We went into his cellar. We grabbed a bottle of wine. We grabbed his homemade saucisson de Lyon. We did, we roasted a leg of lamb together. He showed me all of these little things that he tricked out and was amazing. And I drove away from that house, which keep in mind was the original Cafe Balloud built in 1901. That's that picture that. That's that picture. It, yeah, exactly. And I drove away from his house and I called Danielle on the phone and Danielle had just gotten his four star New York times review. And he was celebrating. And I said, hey, chef, it's Gavin. He says, hey, did you see the review? And I said, no, what did you get? He says, four stars. We're all having champagne. He says, where are you? And I said, I just left your parents' house. I had the most amazing lunch of my life. I said, it blew me away. And I said, chef, I'm going to let you go. But I just want to tell you, I understand why you're the chef you are, because that's the hospitality you were raised with. And, you know, I mean, that's the thing. It's like those little instances that you think about and that you remember, like what sort of helps perpetuates that warm hug inside of a dining room inside of a kitchen. Like that's it. Yeah. And by the way, like this conversation around a conversation of closing a restaurant, I don't think it's a non sequitur. Like, I don't know about you, everyone. We've all gone through some, some weird stuff. We've lost people. We've lost money. We've lost opportunities. It's turned out to be a very, very different year that it was meant to be. And what I found is more of an appreciation for my people, like my real people. I find myself like almost caring less about some people so I can care even more about my real people. Yeah. Because when there's someone like that in your darkest hour that you can call and you can feel totally okay crying over Mm -hmm. the phone too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is truly what makes me feel, and I I feel like I'm sensing the same in you, that everything is going to be just fine. Well, and I think, yeah, I mean, for sure, I believe in all that. And I think that this has ultimately allowed our profession to come together in a way that we've never been able to do that before. By the way, I think it's in a way that is like so overdue, so overdue. Um, I mean, pick up any interview from eight months ago about a chef or a restaurateur and and a question that comes up like, Oh, do you get along with this person? It's like, I only see them at X festival. I only see them at Y event. It's like, that's ridiculous. Like why would I only talk to certain people at certain events and festivals when I'm on a zoom call with every single one of them three times a week right now and have been for the last how many weeks, you know, it's like, you know, our people like understanding how we can sort of get through all this stuff is one thing, but how do we make sure that we continue to have this dialogue? Because I look at Danielle and I look at his generation, Will, and I often think to myself like, okay, what is their legacy, right? What have they left for us? If you think about it, a lot of them left the world to us, right? They opened restaurants around the world. They let us travel around the world. They opened up all sorts of new opportunities that there's no way we would have if they they hadn't put what they put forward. So what are we going to do? What do we leave behind? 
Hamilton's a hot topic right now, right? Because it went live on whatever Disney something. But it's like in the second act, I saw it live. And in the second act of Hamilton, there's a great line. He says, legacy is a seed that you plant in a garden, but you don't have time to watch it grow. Yeah. And it's like, that's where we are, right? We're planting a seed now. We may never see where it grows. We may never see the full bloom of this garden, but we're planting the seed now. And we better make sure that we actually nurture it long enough to have some stability moving forward. I love that. And by the way, you, you do have enough kids to know that it's called Disney Plus. I thought it was Disney Plus, but I, I wasn't sure. <laughs> Disney something. Just to be clear, you got YouTube, you got Disney Plus, you got Netflix. I've got Apple TV. I don't even know how to turn the damn thing on. <laughs> hey, you know, I, and one of my things, I think it's a thing of all of us that do what we do is we always look for silver linings. We're eternal optimists. We say, okay, this is hard, but look at all the stuff we're learning. It still sucks, man. And I'm sorry that you, that you had to close that restaurant because I ate there and it was extraordinary. Yeah, with your and dad, table five. I, I ate there with my dad. And, yep. and I'm really happy that I got a chance to. Thank you, yeah. I guess I would just end with this. And this is where I ask you to, to just drop profound wisdom on the world. A lot of other people are going to go through this. It's inevitable at this stage. Yeah. What advice or what words would you, would you have for them? So I was talking to you a little bit about this book that I'll read and it's a book of changes and you threw it. It's called the Ching or the book of changes. And it's sort of this guide to turning points in life and you throw coins, right? And the coins create different mathematics and those mathematics create lines. And then you follow it. And I've, I've pulled out a couple of different ones, but the first one that I pulled out was about nourishment, which I think is so relevant to what we do in our profession. And I'll give you six lines from that that I think are important to read. It says, the challenge lies ahead. Ready yourself by deepening the stillness within. Anxious anticipation only weakens your ability. As danger draws closer, don't be pulled off balance or act rashly. Cultivate humility, correctness, and stillness. There is danger of being swayed from a correct attitude and to allow this only invites misfortune. Return to the strength of proper principles. A moment of peace in the midst of difficulty. Make use of the occasion for rest while preparing within for further challenge. A solution appears that at first glance will seem strange, but waiting with an open mind and a quiet heart allows you to accept truth in whatever form it arrives. I read that passage often because I think it sort of tells my it's an opportunity to tell myself to be who I am. Yeah. Believe who I am and believe in it and believe what it is that we're going after and what we're trying to achieve. And whether that's within our company, whether it's that within the independent restaurant coalition that we're a part of, whether that's within our family, whatever that is, like it's time to believe it and it's time to live it and act it. The truth of the matter is, is that within days, everything that we all had sort of got flipped upside down. So now it's sort of time for us to stand up and, and restructure what that foundation looks like and be stronger. Good. You're the man. I appreciate your time so much and I appreciate your words and everyone's just listening to us, but I have the benefit of getting to see you right now. And, and you put a smile on my face. It's good to see you too, man. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Take it easy. All right. See you guys. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in and hope you'll join us again next week here on weekly specials. This show is produced by the welcome conference team 
including Aaron Ginsberg, Anthony Rudolph, Sandra DiCapua, and Brian Canlis. And our music is courtesy of Aaron Raytier. Special thanks to our creative collaborators at Resi, and thank you to our longtime partners at American Express and Sam Pellegrino for their unwavering support. During a time when we're not able to come together in person, it's that support that allows us to connect with you here. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about the Welcome Conference, visit welcomeconference.org or find us on Instagram at Welcome Conference. It's the weekly specials. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you. The 